I bring greetings to you from Holland, Michigan Harbor Church. I want you to know that I really appreciate your pastor. To be able to come down to Georgia and get to know y'all is a great blessing. But in particular, to be able to get to know Nick and his family has been a delight for me. I was down here in Rincon a couple of years ago now, Nick, and able to see Nick from a distance, and I've been to uh, GAs for the Reformed Baptist Network, and I see Nick in a distance and we cross paths, but for me to be with him for an extended period of time, and then to be able to be in his home. You can find out a lot just by observing in the home. There can be an aroma in the home. I know if you came to my home, you may feel like at certain times, because we have uh, a family that has uh, thorns and thistles in our lives, so you may smell like there's something that died under the refrigerator in our home because there may be sin or a conflict between one sibling and another sibling. But I will admit, having been in the home of Nick and Felicia, it has the aroma of chocolate chip cookies in the oven. It's really sweet. I, I'm sure Nick said, well, we had a good, a good uh, 48 hours here. I, I know, I understand that. But there's just something to see and an affection and a mutual respect in their home that is really sweet to my nostrils, and I'm sure pleasing aroma in the nostrils of the Lord Jesus. And I keep praying for them. I'm sure they have difficulties and challenges, but I've enjoyed getting to know Nick and Felicia and the girls and Nicholas. Nicholas and I both like green t-shirts, so we have a lot in common. <laughs> now, I've been asked to give my testimony, and I think that's legitimate because I am to you like a Melchizedek, it said about Melchizedek, he had no genealogy. So you know nothing about me. I, I come to you like a Melchizedek. So I think giving a little background may be helpful in hearing my ministry later on at the worship service. But I do admit that it makes me hesitant because I don't like talking about myself. There can be an, an egocentrism that I deal with in my own sins but I will say that the Word of God, Psalm 66, verse 18, it says, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. And that's a good basis for my coming and telling you about my life and what the Lord has done, because he has done, I believe, something glorious and wonderful for my soul, and I hope it fetches glory to the name of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray before we begin and ask God's blessing on this. Heavenly Father, we would say with the psalm writer, not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name may there be glory. And so we ask that in this hour as we talk about the things that you have done in lives, we pray that you would be glorified. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come. Lord Jesus, would you walk among us and work in us, and would you shine a bright light on your person, and may your heavenly Father be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was born back in 1959 
into a Roman Catholic family that was committed to the things that the Roman Catholic Church taught. Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church was the church that we attended my mother when she was young. If you drive through Grand Rapids on the expressway, you see St. Adelbert's Basilica. And that's a very important church, Roman Catholic, in Grand Rapids. My mom was married there at St. Adelbert's. She went to school. The nuns taught her there. When she was in high school, she wrote a paper about her hopes and dreams for life. And her hope was, one of the things in the paper she wrote, that when she would have children, she would name all of her children either Mark or, talk to my brother back there, Mark or Joseph. And so I have an older brother who was born in 1957. His name is Gregory Joseph Chansky. Uh, did, did I say just Joseph? Joseph. Uh, name all of her sons Joseph or uh, daughters Mary. Now, you'd realize why that would be the case, because in the Roman Catholic pantheon of saints to whom people pray, Mary and Joseph are two in the highest stature. So I'll name my kids Mary and Joseph. So uh, my older brother, born in 57, Gregory Joseph Chansky, and my brother, born in 58, David Joseph Chansky. I was born in 59, Mark Joseph, we share the same name, Mark Joseph Chansky, Chris was born in 61, Christopher Joseph Chansky. And then about five years later, my baby sister was born. Her name is, can you guess? Mary, Mary Joe Chansky. <laughs> so my mom kept that vow. I just say this because very Roman Catholic, very dyed in the wool. The church was of crucial importance to them. And I thank God for that in many ways because with the Roman Catholic Church and the idea of there being a God in heaven and there being rights and wrongs, I was raised by a father who was a disciplinarian. And my dad did have a, a black belt he wore as a mailman. And when dad would come home and there were these four sons who were sitting around the table, a lot of testosterone there, we could have conflicts and troubles, but all my dad would need to do is loosen his belt and we were controlled because there was discipline. I'm not suggesting that you should use a belt. I, boy, Nick, you know, ministering in 2019 and all of the issues that are at stake, uh, I believe that corporal punishment is healthy and wholesome. The Proverbs say, he who, who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And my dad was very fair in his disciplining us. And he made sure that we worked hard and that we honored our mom. And I thank God for that kind of structure in my life as I grew up. And as I grew up, I too was in a Roman Catholic school. We would be raised by the nuns. The nuns were disciplinarians themselves. One of my nuns, Sister Cyprian in particular in fourth grade, she had this long wooden pointer with a rubber tip. And if somebody was out of line, you could get your knuckles wrapped on the desk with that. And they were demanding academically. And I was very thankful for that kind of rigorous study that I had in my youth. And often high school, I went off to a public school and I found that I was well set up academically 
by this kind of a Roman Catholic upbringing. As a little boy, uh, I suppose it was viewed that I was a nice boy, I was a good boy, and I thought to myself, well, I'm probably going to heaven because my thought was I'm better than most. If you're a Roman Catholic, you think of Judgment Day, you stand before God, and your life is going to be weighed on pan scales, and you have to have more goods than bads, and if you've done more good things than bad things and put some Roman Catholic ceremony on the, on the good side, then the scales will tip in your favor and you go to heaven. So I just thought to myself, I, I'm a pretty good boy and I'm probably going to heaven because I'm better than most. That's Roman Catholic theology in a nutshell. However, God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. And my heart was bad. My heart was really bad. I think some of you young people here. James, I was able to meet you here. And how old are you now, James? Okay, 11. When I was about that age, I, uh, people thought I was a good boy, but I was, I was really a, a, an ugly person. For example, Mike Kurgis was in our neighborhood. He had a paper out. Mike always had money because he delivered his papers. And so when Mike came home from school on the way, he could stop off at Sweetland's and buy a two-pound bag of jelly beans, and I'd be walking with Mike, and I still remember, Mike was a little taller than I was. Caleb was Caleb, about as tall as you. He's a tall guy. As opposed to me, I was a little shorter, and I could grab the bag, and I could run away from Mike, because my asset physically was not my height. I was fast. I was really fast. So I could get about 15, 20 yards away from Mike and just taunt him, and I can see I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, and there's Mike, and he's crying because he wants his two-pound bag of jelly beans. And I just love that. I just delighted in the fact that I was able to dominate him in that way. Now, you might not think that's that big a deal. I didn't set a fire someone's house by way of arson. And I wasn't in gross sexual immorality. But the Lord looked on that. And God was so merciful in his long-suffering during that era in my life that the earth didn't open up and swallow me because of the wickedness of my own heart. So I, 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 I grew up and I went off to the public high school when I was about 14 years old. And as I was at this public high school, the Lord did something to my dad. My dad was going off golfing on a Saturday morning with three other guys. It was a foursome. And I imagine my dad putting his clubs in the back of the station wagon, and maybe there was a Titleist II ball that bounced out. He had to get it, and it hit a crack, and he had to go off and get it, and he took the Titleist II ball, put it back in, closed it up, and he drove. Earl Ursel was driving the car. My dad was sitting in the passenger, uh, the driver's side rear, and as they were driving down Three Mile Road in North Grand Rapids, on the way to the golf course, there was a woman who had diabetes, forgot to take her insulin. She came across the yellow line because she blacked out and slammed into the side of the car and just maimed my dad. He had a, a broken, fractured skull. He had a broken shoulder, five broken ribs, a bayonet break in his femur, in his tibia, in his fibula, lung collapsed, his eye kind of almost hanging out. 
And we went to the hospital that night because mom said that dad may die and this was our opportunity to see him. And I saw him that night and went home expecting my dad to die, but he lived. He lived, but then he was, he was maimed and he was in the hospital for two months and my strong, capable dad was broken and I hated God for it. I still remember being downstairs in the basement and I was just cursing God for what he had done to my dad. But in this process, my dad got saved. And I can, my dad would be in the hospital bed. I'd drive my gold Schwinn five-speed bike from uh, northern Grand Rapids downtown, sit with my dad for a couple of hours at the hospital, and he would just tell me what God had done. My dad wasn't a profound, systematic theologian, but dad would say things like, Mark, I was so far down, I had to reach up to touch bottom, but the Lord, through this process, has, has, has saved me. He, he's forgiven me of my sin, and something changed in my dad. In fact, my dad, he had this, uh, this eye, and I still remember being in the hospital, and he would say, he said, move. He, he, I was by the window. He'd say, move a little bit. You could see little flashes of light. That eye, that eye never came back. But he wore an eye patch the rest of his life. And he was kind of like a pirate, some of you young kids. Imagine that, Silas. My dad wore an eye patch. He looked like a pirate. But the Lord, he, he, he would always say, what a bargain. I lost my eye, but I gained my soul through this process. Now, I, I didn't really understand all of this. My mom, during this time, would attend a Bible Study Fellowship, BSF. Is that a thing down here in Georgia? Well, it is up there where ladies come together and they study the Word. They make no denominational emphasis, just trying to work through the Scriptures and present the Gospel so a Roman Catholic can go and not feel threatened. And Mom went to this Bible study fellowship, and begins, she began to get bits and pieces of the gospel that would be brought into her life. And I remember when I was maybe 14, 15 years old, I remember staring out the window of the house. It's cold in Michigan when you stare out the window, like in February or March, and I can still remember the, the window fogging up as I was listening to what my mom was saying. And she was saying things like, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you trust in him that he died on the cross, then all of your sins can be forgiven and you can go to heaven. I remember turning around saying, come on, Mom, what are you, what are you thinking? Because I'm pan scales, good and bad. It's the whole life body of work that that's the judgment day issue. And she would tell me about this, and things were fogged up in my mind. I didn't really understand what mom was saying. So I was off at the high school at this time, and football I would play, and basketball, and baseball. I think basketball was my favorite. And I was going to play on the varsity as a sophomore, and I even stopped playing football that year, so in that autumn I could work out with the varsity team during football season, and everything was going wonderful until I went up for a layup, 
and I came down and I rolled my ankle really bad and everybody in the gym heard the crack and when I woke up after the surgeon had dealt with me, he looked at me and said, I thought you'd be in a cast for six weeks and you'd be back out there. And he said, I'm sorry, it was broken so bad you can't run for a year. And my athletic idol just crashed right in front of me. And I was, I was absolutely devastated. And my dad came to, to me, I still remember, I, 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 I don't know if I was suicidal, that's probably too strong, but my dad came to my bedside with his one eye blinking at me like this, and he said, okay, I'm gonna leave this pad of paper at the bedside here in the hospital, and leave a pencil alongside of it. You write, you write all the names of the people you'd rather be than who you are right now. And he left, and he came back the next day, of course the pad was, was empty, because I, I, I at least had this idea, my dad would say to me, that God has everything in control. And, and God is working in your life, Mark. And you don't understand what he's doing, but he, he, he knows what he's doing. And, and through that time then, I, I had a softening. I wasn't saved at this time. The hospital experience didn't save me like it saved my dad, but there was an awakening awakening to the things of God, that God was working in my life. And there was a humbling, because I fear, I fear what would have happened if God hadn't dealt with me regarding that whole issue of what was the main focus of my life. So then, I was about 17 years old, and I was playing on a, a baseball team, and we were in a summer tournament, and on this baseball team, I remember it was, it was batting practice, it was... It was July, late July, and we were in this tournament. We'd, we'd won our district, we'd won our region, we'd won the state of Michigan, and now we were going to go to what's called, was called the Big League World Series down in somewhere Miami, Florida. We were all pumped. We were all going down and batting practice beforehand, and a guy named Mike McNamara was pitching to me, and I thought he was throwing me a curveball, but it was a fastball, and it jammed me in my thumb, and I do have a, you see this scar right there, Nick? You can validate. A doctor, we have a PA here. See the scar right there? It's there, validating. The thumb, the thumb just popped open, and I had a big gash in my thumb, really deep, and they had to put stitches in it, and they said, you, you can't play it. If you, they said, if you mess up your thumb, and you don't let it heal, then your thumb isn't even going to work the rest of your life. Just let the thing heal. So I couldn't go to Florida. But there was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes summer camp at Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant the same week. So instead of going down to Florida, which is where I wanted to go, the Lord had other plans. Didn't my dad say God controls everything? So I went off to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, and as I was there, we had Bible studies. We'd do all kinds of athletic things, but we'd have Bible studies. And there was a guy named Jim Snow. Does anybody know who Jim Snow is? You don't know Jim Snow, because I haven't heard of Jim Snow since 1976. If you hear of Jim Snow or you meet him, tell him about me. Tell him that I listened to his Bible studies. And though we acted obnoxious, a lot of us guys, he had what he called a little dog patch group. 12 guys that he worked with all week. He was so line on line, precept on precept. A little here, a little there, he taught us the gospel. 
so that by the end of the week, on Friday night, there were men who were preaching the word, and God grabbed hold of my heart that night. And I would listen to these guys from inner city Chicago. The only way they used Jesus' name was cursing before the camp. And now they're praising him, and God had done a work in their hearts, and the idea of forgiveness in Christ, which was the message my dad had talked to me about years ago, when he, and my mom had talked to me about when the window fogged up. Now, things came clear, and I saw Christ had died for me, and that in his dying that my sins can be forgiven. And I still remember going from Rose Arena, which is where we had the speaking, to my dorm, I just couldn't stop crying, Eva. I couldn't control myself. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that is the evidence that somebody is saved if they can't catch their breath when they're crying. But I'm just saying, that's the way God worked with me. And here I'm among all these, these, these macho guys, and I can't even catch my breath on the way back. So that by the time I actually got back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, came in the kitchen. There was my dad sitting there with his one eye. And he's looking at me. And he said, he said, so how'd it go, superstar? That's what he called me. See, my dad was an encourager. He, he, even though I wasn't really a superstar, my dad called me a superstar. And uh, so he said, superstar, how'd it go this week? And I said, dad, I became a Christian. And I still see that one eye blinking again at me. He didn't fully understand all the theology of it either, but I think there was a resonating because he had had something like that happen to him years earlier. And God just began to work in my life. Uh, again, I talk about the evil of my life. I think of all kinds of sins, the sin of pride, the sin of arrogance, the sin of, the sin of impurity during those days in my life. What, what a battle living in a world that is filled with sexual immorality and the idea of my sins being forgiven and, and opening the word. I used to sit there in the living room. We had this green lazy boy chair that was on shag. Remember the shag carpeting? You remember the shag carpeting? My mom had this way when she would when she was a wonderful communicator with us, so when I'd come home in high school, and my mom would be reading the paper late at night, maybe 11.30, she'd stay up. Why would she stay up till 11.30? Because she was waiting for me. She wanted to debrief me. And she'd have a, a beer. Roman Catholic family. She'd have a beer, and somehow she could balance it on the shag carpeting. And we would, we would talk together, late into the night, my mom and I. Well, now I was sitting in that same room, and I'm reading my Bible. It was good news for modern man. I'm, you don't approve of that, Nick, I know. I know it's just a paraphrase, but for me, it was the word of God coming home to my heart. And I would read chapter after chapter. I'd read, I'd read hour after hour. I had a hunger for the word. That was one of the evidences that God had really done a work in my life. And so I, I, I had an interest in the word, and I, I went back to school in that last year, and, and there were differences in that last year my senior year of high school, and I praise God for the way he worked in me during that season of life. So I then went off to Calvin College my senior year. Calvin College is a Christian reform college in 
Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I thought that I wanted to be a Christian psychologist. I wanted to help people. I want to encourage people to work through emotional and psychological difficulties. So I thought that's what God had called me to do in making me a Christian. So as I was at Calvin College, I thought, Calvin College, John Calvin, this, this is a Christian man. By the way, I still was a Roman Catholic at this time because I didn't see anything that was inconsistent with Catholicism and my new belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I went off to Calvin College and I listened to some of their teaching and there was one professor that I had and he was telling me, well, in New Testament introduction, he said, you need to understand that these pastoral epistles like Timothy, first and second, and Titus, or even the prison epistles, these weren't really written by the Apostle Paul. They were written by a later redactor. And so he's starting to give me this, this higher criticism, Sam. And he was telling me that we need to understand that the Bible really isn't the literal word of God. And I realize how I could have gone down a very dangerous path if I'd have continued at Calvin College, but my dad was right. God is in control of everything, Mark. Because I wanted to go off to this place called, now it's, now it's called Cornerstone University. It used to be called Grandmother's Baptist College. And I heard there was, there was a guy named Victor Matthews. Victor Matthews was a professor at Grand Rapids Baptist College. Victor Matthews was a guy who used to hold a Thursday night Bible study at Cornerstone my wife, my wife, my mother used to attend that Bible study. She used to take Mike Everenden, who was a Roman Catholic priest, with his Roman collar, and my mom and the priest would go to this Baptist auditorium and sit there in the second or third row while Victor Matthews is giving his Bible study. In fact, Victor Matthews eventually became my seminary professor at Cornerstone. And he said, I still remember 15 years ago when your mom came with that priest with a Roman collar, week after week, and I would give him the gospel. I'm sure that was a thrilling thing for Dr. Matthews. Well, I wanted to get over to Grand Rapids Baptist, so I did. I, I switched from Calvin College to Grand Rapids Baptist, and I still remember sitting in my counselor's office before I started, and you know when you try out, you apply to college, you have to have a pastor's recommendation. My pastor's recommendation was signed by a Roman Catholic priest. So think if you're Larry Rowland, who was my counselor, and Larry Rowland looks at the, my application, and there's this guy coming in named Chansky, Polish, and he's got a Roman Catholic priest signing his pastor's recommendation. I'm sure that just thrilled him. What do I got here? So he says, Here's some classes that you should take. You should take, first take elementary doctrine. I said, no, 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 I don't want any doctrine. I just want Bible. Because <laughs> I was really sophisticated at this time. And he said, well, Mark, I'm thinking, I'm thinking elementary doctrine might be something you would enjoy. It might be, been, okay, I, I, I signed up for it. And when I got into the classroom and I was sitting in the third or fourth row, it was Larry Rowland, that counselor was the teacher. Because he, he knew I was a piece of work. And he knew he was going to work on me. And I can still remember, now I'm about 19 years old, sitting in his class, and he started talking about justification by faith. 
Now, I think I was saved when I was 17, but now it's two, two and a half years later. And he began to talk about the fact that our, our sins, listen to this now, past, present, and future have been nailed to the cross. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. See, I knew about the idea of forgiveness of sin, but the righteousness of Christ imputed to my account. I, I believe I was saved two and a half years earlier, but you know the account of the blind, even, even I were talking about the blind man and, and the way first the spittle was applied to his eyes and he opened his eyes and he could see, but he saw men like trees walking. Things were kind of upside down and foggy. But the second application, he saw things clear. I think that's the way the Lord worked in my life. So, no, I saw it clear. Justification by faith. Again, I do believe I was saved two and a half years earlier. I was regenerate, born again. But he brought me this understanding, and I was, I was on my way. And the scriptures, again, being opened up. While I was at Cornerstone University, there was a guy who was passing out, his name was Paul Gundy, he would pass out these sword and trowel magazines. C.H. Spurgeon's magazine that he had written was the sword and the trowel, and they were replicating that. I think it was the Founders Movement that put that out. And I'm going to read about Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism, and then the sovereignty of God and salvation, and then the issue of who's really saved. There was a decisionalism that was common at Grand Rapids Baptist College Cornerstone. It was if, if you pray a prayer, or you come forward, or you sign a card, and you've, you've recited John 3.16, then you're saved. And a counselor would say to you, if you've prayed that prayer, you should never doubt that you're a Christian. You're good to go. And the whole carnal Christian doctrine, how you can have Jesus as your Savior, that's kind of optional to have him as your Lord. Well, I, I saw this, and I really struggled. But that's not what my Bible is saying. My Bible is saying there's a broad road and a narrow road, and small is the gate. The narrow is the road that leads to life, and broad is the way to destruction. And so I began to search for a church that would embrace the sovereignty of God and holiness of life and reform Baptist Church of Grand Rapids. You know, Sam Waldron, Sam Waldron was one of the pastors there at that time, and I went to that church, and I remember that the, the word of God came home to me in a way that just, that just struck like lightning, and it boomed like thunder in my conscience. And I began to wonder, am I? This became not so theoretical anymore to me. Holiness, without looking at myself, am I, am I really a Christian? There were things still going on in my life. Uh, issues of saints. There, there still are things going on in my life. Issues of sanctification. I still fall. The proverb says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. I wish I could say to you, I don't fall into sin anymore, but I do still fall into sin. So, but so battling with this. Do, am I really a Christian? Even I can remember who was uh, who's the man who works for Sintas? Yes. Uh, I worked for the post office. I'd get up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and there was a thunderstorm, and the lightning cracked, and I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm lost, I'm damned, the Lord has come for me. 
because there was this conscience wrestling. I was, I was 2 Corinthians 13, examining myself to see if I'm in the faith, testing myself. Do you not know the Spirit of God dwells in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And that was a good season in my life. I'm so thankful for it, my assurance. I, I was given a sense of assurance, and, and for that, I'm thankful. So then I, in studying the Word, I remember I said I wanted to be a, a Christian psychologist. And I, I realized that, you know, that Nick, Nick Kennecott, he's kind of a Christian psychologist, isn't he? Uh, Sunday mornings, he speaks to you for maybe an hour. It's kind of like a group therapy session, isn't it? I think it is. And I, just the thought that how, how has the Lord designed that souls would be shepherded and cared for in the context not of having a business and a shingle on a door and I am Dr. Mark Chansky, but instead a pastor and people coming together on the Lord's Day and uh, spurring one another on and, and iron sharpening iron to one another. And so I thought I, I, should, really, I should really be a pastor and not necessarily a Christian psychologist. So I began to, to move in that direction and with the Reformed Baptist Church and thought, yeah, I, I think I'd like to be a pastor. So I'm at Cornerstone now. I met this girl at Cornerstone. Her name was Diane. She was from Iowa. And she would sit in the library, and I would go over to the table, and I'd sit next to her. Well, truth be told, I didn't make the initiation. She made the initiation to me. Now, I'm not saying that women should stalk men. I know what happens now, how the roles of men and women. I think men should be the aggressor. But I do think a little dropping of the hanky, Trish, you know, maybe you did that with Derek. A little dropping of the hanky isn't so bad, is it? Yeah, she kind of says maybe. But here's what Diane did to me. I, I, was, studying, I was studying John Gill's Body of Divinity. And I was working with my underliner. And Diane, I was actually in one of those uh, cubicles where you have the blinders where you can't see anyone else. So Diane saw me there. And she came over to me and she said, could I borrow your highlighter? Was that innocent, Tricia, when she said that? No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, and I looked up and she's got these blue eyes and, and I, was, I was whipped at that moment. So eventually then I'd, I'd come over to her table and I would talk to her at her table and I would talk to Diane and I would say things and, and I, I really thought I was profound. I wasn't, and, and she knew I wasn't. And I would say something, and other people I would talk to, maybe even girls I would talk to at tables, they would, they would express, oh, that's really profound, Mark. But Diane would say to me, oh, I don't agree with that. And I really liked that. I thought, wow, this isn't a girl, this is a woman. And I was really drawn to that, that she would be willing to disagree with me. And I, I was convinced this was the love of my life. Now, she, she was going out on campus with a guy named Dave. And Dave was actually a childhood friend of mine. But I, I detested this idea. Who, you were at what college? Oh, Patrick Henry College. Sometimes in Christian colleges, there's this notion that if a guy goes out with a girl, 
three or four times that somehow she belongs to him. That she's his property. It's kind of an unwritten rule. I thought that wasn't fair. And so Dave had gone out with Diane a few times. And I, didn't, I said, Diane, I, would you go out with me? You don't have a ring on your finger. You can say no if you want. And she said, yes. So we went out to church. We went out to Vitaly's Pizza in three or four places in um, November and into December. And I thought, this is the one for me. Then she went home for Christmas break. And then she came back and she said, Mark, I'm, I've been trying to juggle two guys, Dave and Mark. And I asked my mom what I should do. And she said, invite one of them over. And she invited Dave to Iowa. And I was toast. I was gone. And she dumped me. And it was devastating uh, for me. Again, the Lord is working in my life. And uh, again, I thought this was the, the woman that I would marry, but it seemed the Lord had other plans. So for about a year and a half, uh, I, I would see her occasionally on campus. But then, just before graduation, one week before graduation, Diane came to me and she said, uh, a year and a half ago, I made the wrong decision. I'm, I'm interested in you. Would you be willing to start again? Well, now we have five children and seven grandchildren. God gave me the love of my life, my Diane. And admittedly, her disagreeing with me, it is a wonderful trait that she has. <laughs> but it is an area where God has sanctified me and sanctified us, and, and she has become a real encourager to me, too, in my life. And I praise God for my wife. The Lord gave me just exactly the woman that I needed. And she says things to me that no one else will say to me, and I praise God for her. Now, I have about 10 minutes left, is that right? Okay, okay. So that's my, that's my, family, my family life. Uh, so then eventually uh, we got married, Dan and I, and I went off to Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, and I finished in four years with my Master of Divinity. I worked at the post office. I worked at UPS. And then I went off to a church in Dayton, Ohio area near Cedarville University where I was a pastor. And the Lord dealt with me just, just wonderfully. Just, just one of the things. I had come out of seminary, and... Uh, just coming out of seminary, uh, I thought that I was going to be this really capable preacher, and they give certain uh, ratings for different people, and I came out with certain ratings, and I thought, boy, when I, get to, when I get to preach, I am going to be something really special. And so just before we were heading down to Dayton, Ohio, we had packed up our yellow rider rent-a-truck and we're about to head down to Dayton. So I was to preach in the Grand Rapids Church for my farewell sermon. And I was preaching on Lamentations chapter 3. And that morning, there was a thunderstorm. The power went out. There were no lights in the building. There were two candles that were the illumination from my notes, which now I couldn't see very well at all. Furthermore, I hadn't been able to prepare very well for the sermon because I was packing up the ride a rental truck. And I began to preach, and I can be really 
uh, egocentric, and I can be really full of pride, and if things don't go the way, I, and they weren't going the way I wanted to go. And I began to feel nervous, I began to perspire, and then from the corners of my brain, darkness, darkness, darkness. You know what's happening here, Felicia? Yes, I passed out. I, I hit the floor. My wife was in the nursery below, and she heard the thud. And the speaker was silent, and I wasn't talking anymore. And Diane said, what is going on up there? Well, I fainted. And the men rush up, and they get, call an ambulance. And, and, and I, I knew what had happened. It was just, I, was, uh, I had a pride fit, is what really happened. And I just said, I, it was, this is my pride. And I actually went through and finished the sermon, and the guy in the tape it was so nice to erase all that blank spot. And somewhere you can find that sermon somewhere. Uh, but I went down to Dayton, Ohio then, and I was terrified by the thought of preaching the next week. I had this phobia, Felicia. This phobia of when I got up to the pulpit, I was going to I just knew I'm going to pass out. And I remember the service, the guy who had prepared the hymns. There was a hymn that was sung just before I stood up, and it was this. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. I, I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. And it was such a blessing for me, who frankly was proud and arrogant coming out of seminary, to come to the pulpit, Sam, every Sunday, fearing that I was going to pass out and if it wouldn't be for the help of God holding me up, I would be a laughing stock. And I would be sent back home with my rider rental truck as known as the fainting pastor. <laughs> and again, my dad, my dad, got, Mark, God has everything in control. Even these small little things. And, and it was a difficult time in that church. Uh, we didn't have all the growth that I had hoped we would have. There were certain controversies that we went through. And God was humbling me, and God was refining the church. I was there for three and a half years at Kemp Road Baptist Church. Then in 1989, which is now called Arbor Church, pastored by Steve Woodman. And then I went back to the church in Grand Rapids, asked me to come back because they were planting churches and they were starting a pastoral training school of theology. They said, would you please come back up and help us? And then the Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville was planted. I would go down there every month for two years to Louisville, working with Jim Sebastio. Then the church in Minneapolis, Minnesota was planted. The church in Lethbridge, Alberta was planted. Uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, we planted a number of churches, started a school of theology. I was there for five years in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at the now Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church, where Jeff Smith is now the pastor. Johnson. Jeff Johnson is now the pastor. And then in 1993, we decided, let's plant another church in Holland, Michigan, which was about 40 miles away. If you think of the, the Mitten, you've got Detroit and Lansing and Grand Rapids and Holland up against the Great Lake, Michigan. So we went and planted a church there. We took 12 of God's finest families and they were pulled away from the Grand Rapids Church and that was the seed for the Holland Church back in 1993, 25 and a half years ago and the Lord established a church there 
we met in a little, no, it was a big gymnasium actually, Rose Park Christian School, and we met there until Ted Chrisman, Pastor Ted who died just this last year. Ted came, and you know, you know Ted, the big comb over he has, and the biggest heart in the world you would find in a pastor. Ted said, this is a wonderful place that the Lord has given you here in this gymnasium, but the day is going to come when you're going to want your own building, and you should pray that God would give you one. All we had was $35,000. $35,000 doesn't buy much up in Michigan, uh, but we did. We had a day of prayer and fasting after Ted told us that, and within a year and a half, we had this beautiful red brick building, southern architecture, four white pillars, seats, really could seat 450, uh, beautiful architecture. We got the building for $150,000, and it was worth like two and a half million at this time. It was owned by a very wealthy man, Christian man who had died. His family, when we were asking about the building, gave us the property for $150,000. When we went to the banker, we said we'd like to buy this facility for $150,000. He said, oh, you mean you want to buy the parsonage for $150,000? We said we want the parsonage, yes, and the whole building. God had opened up the windows of heaven and provided for us. So we've been there now for 25 and a half years. The Lord has been very gracious to us. We presently have four elders in the church. And oh, in that quarter of a century, there are so many dangers, toils, and snares we've gone through. Sam, so many mistakes I have made. So many sins in my life that the people have seen. So many challenges and conflicts we've gone through, but the Lord has been a good shepherd. He's taken us through dangers, toils, and snares. He's been so kind. We have four elders now. Kevin Filsick is, uh, oh, he's, he's God's finest. If I'm, if I'm a Mr. Frodo, then, then Kevin is a Samwise Gamgee. Best of friends. He, he drowned for me. He's endangered his life many times for me. Another man named Rick Kirsten is a pastor. Aaron Vonk is a pastor. Another man, Craig Seitzma, has been a pastor. He's not. He's, he's, uh, he went off to California. He's back now. Craig Seitzma, mighty man of God. I could tell you about him. Then we have uh, five deacons in our church. Uh, pray for our church here at, at, in Holland, Michigan, Harbor Church. We are uh, working through some leadership themes, even, even something very practical. How about this one? We had the issue of hand, foot, and mouth disease. This, this, I'm sure this seems like a really insignificant thing, but hand, foot, and mouth disease in our nursery. Do you ever have controversies in your nursery? Like, this person has a sickness in the my, Tuesday. My child is sick on Tuesday, maybe because of so-and-so bringing in a sniffly child. Well, we had hand, foot, and mouth disease go through our nursery, and there have just been some controversies and some hurt feelings because somebody did or didn't bring their... Pray for us, would you? Pray for us that... Someone said that when Satan fell, he fell in the choir loft, in the music ministry. I think in Holland, when he fell, he fell into the nursery. We need the Lord's help, that the, the enemy's schemes would not somehow harm Harbor Church. 
pray for us as we, again, just ponder the future, ponder how the Lord would lead us and direct us, and that we, we've had real encouragement. Uh, young families have come in. I, just, I love seeing your church, by the way, Nick. I loved all the children that we were able to see on St. Simon's Island, and I see you have the same kind of child mix here. Praise God for that. Sometimes there are churches who are like yours who just have, oh, it's Reformed Baptist 1689 doctrine. Only old people like that, right, Derek? So just gray hairs, but I don't even see any. I'm the oldest man in the building. How old are you, sir? Okay. And he's older than I am. But praise God for the youth here. And, and we have a little t- we have a, a taste of that, too. We're very, very thankful for that. And, and we also are rejoicing to have this locking arms fellowship with the Reformed Baptist Network. Pray for the network, that the Lord would bless these fellowships of churches that are building up, that we would become a force for good in the kingdom. And there are all kinds of difficult, choppy waters out there that could sink us. May God send the Lord Jesus to be our captain so we would be guided safely through all these things. So thank you for listening to me, and I I hope you see that my one-eyed dad was right, that God causes all things, even even a breakup, like somebody suffering from a romantic breakup and your heart is devastated right now, you don't know the last chapter. You don't know what God is going to do with that. Have have great hope. God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose.